Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning once again uh, to the book of Judges. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are uh, some Bibles available on the back table for you. You can also follow along uh, in your insert found in the bulletin. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here with us. And last week we began a study of this Old Testament book that chronicles, or at least begins to chronicle, uh, the early years in the land of promise for the ancient people of God, the nation of Israel, the land that Yahweh had promised to Abram and to his descendants after him. We studied Joshua in this church a few years ago, and that began the story of conquest into the land of promise, uh, and for the most part, presented that conquest in a, uh, what we would say, maybe a positive light. Judges is not a happy book. It is not a positive book, at least not in that same way. This is a book about our need for saving, not just from the world out there, but from what's in here as well. This is a book about the influence of the world around us and the effects of living in a pluralistic society, and we'll get into that in the weeks to come. This is a book about inadequate saviors, deliverers, judges, raised up for God's purposes, but needing rescue themselves. And as we introduced the book, as I introduced the book last week, all of this takes place in the context of conquest. And there's that word again, conquest. It's a word that maybe makes us feel a, a little bit uncomfortable, right? In our modern sensibilities, what are we to think about this conquest that Yahweh prescribed for His people, this merciless taking of someone's land? Not just condoned by Yahweh, but commanded by the Lord. That's a hard concept for us. I realize that's a hard concept for us, and it was helpful to talk with some of you after last week's sermon just to, just to gauge how you were digesting, how you receive this, this introduction to this very difficult book that we're beginning to unpack. And I want to think again by way of introduction this morning, I want to think again for a moment on that issue of conquest. And I'm going to revisit this from time to time because after all, this is one of the common criticisms that's leveled at Christians, that that Old Testament God of yours is vindictive, is merciless. How could you worship such a God? Is it a different God than the God of the New Testament, than the Jesus of the New Testament. Well, remember last week I suggested that two words were very important when we think about this context of conquest, the word judgment and the word holiness. What's happening in the book of Judges is divine judgment. 
In Genesis 15, verses 15 and 16, God is making his covenant. This is way back when God's making his covenant with Abram. And he says this about the timetable, the timetable of the blessing that is going to come upon Abram's people, upon Abram's descendants. He says this in Genesis 15, as for yourself, you shall go, talking to Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You're going to die. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they, your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, here we are in Judges, on the heels of the book of Joshua, And the Lord is saying the sins of the Amorites are full, right? Essentially, the long-suffering God is saying, I've had enough. I've let wickedness reign in that land for long enough, but now it's time to end it. Therefore, it's His justice It's his jealousy for a people, his people that are set apart, that are protected in the land that he is giving them. And yes, we say this this is not how it is in every age. This is not how it is in our age as exiles, as pilgrims. This was not how it was in the age of, of Daniel as he lived in Babylon, but this is how it is in this age. This is how it will be in the new heavens and the new earth where wickedness will be no more for the sake of his people. So last week we began to set the stage for this as we introduce the significance of small things, and I maybe should have said this in my notes, small things was in quotes. It still is in quotes in my notes, meaning these aren't really small things. When I said we must know and understand the significance of the small things, I mean, this was rebellion against God. God's people were not following through on what God had told them to do. That was huge, but in their minds, they thought it was a small thing. In their minds, they rationalized away God's commands. And isn't that just how sin is? Isn't that just how the wily devil loves to work? Did God really say? And so we must recognize the significance of small things that are really big things. Today's passage takes us deeper in introducing this book. Uh, This is part uh, of a larger prologue of the book of Judges that goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. We could say that uh, today's sermon uh, is introduction part two. And it was my plan at the beginning of the week and when I gave the passage to Rena and she stuffed it all in the insert uh, that you see before you. It was my plan 
to preach the entire passage, but as I realized, got into it, got finished with my first point, I realized that's almost a sermon in and of itself. And last week was a pretty long week. And you're like, yeah, Pastor, I I remember last week. And so uh, I stopped short this week after the bulletin was printed. And so we're just going to look at the first part of this passage, and you can, re- you can cry a, a selective uh, or a collective sigh of relief, uh, verses 6 through 12. So this is part one of the second part of the introduction, if that's not confusing enough. Um, Judges chapter 2. Uh, with all of that by way of introduction. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word if you're able? Judges chapter 2, starting at verse 6, where we left off last week. And uh, again, as I just said, uh, just reading down through verse 12. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Eres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage this morning, there are just true truths that I want us to meditate on, much like last week, much like we'll do most weeks, I think, as I look ahead into where we're headed in this difficult book of Judges. A lot of weeks are going to be a warning, an exhortation of some sort, and a promise. A warning and a promise. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on the warning And it's this, we are always in danger of losing the next generation. We are always in danger of losing the next generation. Joshua's generation did. We need to know that we are no different. Remember the the good old days? Remember the the golden years in your life? Perhaps there are seasons of your particular life that you think of as, oh, those were the days. 
I suppose every generation to some extent has a a generational arrogance about their day of growing up, right? Those days when you walked to school both ways and it was uphill in both directions. Those days, those good old days, not like the days of today. We ask ourselves the question, are the good old days always better? Are the good old days always better? Absolutely not. And I think about that every time I'm in a chair at the dentist. And I think about my poor great-great-grandfather and the dental work that he had done and whatever that must have felt like. And I say, thank you, Lord, that I don't live in the good old days. But sometimes, sometimes those days long ago, whenever those days were, sometimes those days are better. Our passage this morning begins with a flashback of sorts, kind of disorienting, right? Because we began last week with the fact that Joshua was dead and had died, and now here we are, Joshua has died again and is being buried. No, this is simply a flashback that is beginning and continuing to set up the rest of the book and the cycle that is coming in the rest of the book. And the flashback is about Joshua and his generation. Joshua, remember, the one who served the Lord faithfully. He wasn't a perfect man, but he served the Lord faithfully. And he and his generation, they are the ones who had seen the Jordan part as the Lord entered them into this land of promise. They are the ones who saw the Lord fight for them at Jericho, at Ai. They are the ones who saw the sun literally stand still at Gibeon. Remember some of these stories that we looked at years ago. They had, they had seen, they had lived, many of them, through Yahweh's great work. And in fact, if we flip back, if we go back, Joshua charged the leaders of Israel before his death in Joshua 23. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. He says, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges, its officers, and he said to them, I am now old and well advanced And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all the nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Joshua intentionally made sure that the people knew this was Yahweh's work. But our passage is all about them being gone. (laughs) Joshua's gone. His peers are gone. They are no more. And now, of the next generation, it says this, they did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. Oh no. (laughs) Something had gone terribly wrong. Well, I suspect the stories, the stories had been told. They knew somewhat of the characters. They knew somewhat of the 
the legends, but they were distant. These, these weren't their memories. They were, they were abstract. They were far off. They were maybe lifeless, the stuff of books and scrolls, not the stuff of real life. Almost fairy tale like to this next generation. See, it had been too long. Life, life had moved on. They were distracted. They were disinterested. And so, verse 11 proclaims they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I don't want to point fingers. The text won't allow me to point fingers. But this is a warning. I think, and I'm not alone in saying this, this is a warning, not just to moms and to dads, but to all who belong to God, to all who are part of the body of Christ, who want to see His name exalted. We should lament, shouldn't we, when precious things come to an end. We should be vigilant and guard against the possibility that they might. Let me give you a a silly example of an article that I read just this past week. I had bookmarked it long ago, and I came across it, stumbled across it this week. It's an article about a 62-year-old Italian woman, Chiara Vigo, and she is believed to be the last person on earth who knows how to harvest dye, and embroider sea silk. These tiny, tiny fibers that grow from a Mediterranean clam, and she dives down and she trims them off, makes them into thread. Sea silk is apparently super super rare, highly coveted. It goes back 5,000 years to the women of Mesopotamia. It's mentioned 45 times in the Old Testament. It was harvested to make robes for Solomon and maybe for the tabernacle as well. And she's the only one in the world left who knows how to harvest it, who knows how to embroider it, who knows how to prepare it. It's, fa- it's fascinating. In a sense, it's, it's heartbreaking, and that's why the article was written of the need for someone else to learn this ancient art, this ancient craft. Well, why do I bring that up? Because how much more people of God, if the name of God and the excellency of God isn't passed down to the next generation. If 50 years from now, Ascension Presbyterian just doesn't even exist. If the PCA doesn't even exist, do we care? We're not going to be around. We ought to care. We ought to recognize that we are always in danger of losing the next generation. I think it's one of the clear things that this passage 
teaches us and exhorts us to be vigilant about. Yes, the Spirit of God must give sight. We recognize that. We're good Calvinists, many of us. But the passing down of knowledge, the passing down of not simply the knowledge of God, but the life of God in Christ ought to be, it must be a priority for parents and for all of us in this church. Listen to these passages. Many of them are familiar. Listen to God's concern, Yahweh's concern for kids, for children. Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach, speaking of His commands, them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Deuteronomy 31, Moses tells the people to celebrate the Feast of Booze, and as he does, he says, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, to be careful to do all the words of this law, that, your, that their children who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Psalm 71, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who are to come. Psalm 145, one generation shall commend your works to another to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. See, we are reminded here this morning that the God that we worship is a God of covenant. He's a God who is pleased to work through families, to work through generations, to work for the people of God because He is jealous that His children know who He is. And so, yes, it's appropriate this morning that we honor mothers. No, I didn't plan it to coincide with this cultural day called Mother's Day. But here it is in our text. Just as Paul praised Timothy's mother, Eunice, and even his grandmother, Lois, we should recognize those who have faithfully put before our kids the praiseworthy deeds of the God that we worship. Just as it's appropriate to honor fathers in whenever we do that. But of course, you've heard me speak about this before. I spoke about it in the introduction to our service, in the announcement time. This concern extends beyond biological families, but to this entire spiritual family. Because we don't praise and serve God in, in isolation or in individuality. The moment we come to Christ, we are joined with Christ, and we are joined with one another as the body of Christ, the body of Christ that He died for, that He loves, and His love for this messy body then becomes our love. If you've been around here long enough, you've heard me quote Susan Hunt, the author, she's 
a teacher in our denomination and has written extensively on the covenant and the importance of passing to the next generation, the praiseworthy deeds. And I love some of the quotes she has. I'm going to read them to you. Some of you have heard them before. She says, our children, speaking of the church, our children are indeed gifts from the Lord. They are a sacred trust, not just to parents, but to the kingdom. We must shape them as a warrior shapes and stabilizes his arrows and then carefully aims them at their enemy, at the enemy. Our children need to know that they are heirs of the promise, that they live in the realm of the covenant, that they are valued members of this community. We, like in a broken culture, we live in a broken culture that is grasping for a sense of direction by talking about family values and governmental villages raising our children. Christian families do not exist in isolation from one another. Every Christian family should be a snapshot of God's kingdom values, but the church is the mural. The church, the covenant community, is to be the compelling panorama of grace. Oh, that's good. So we ask ourselves this morning, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandmas, grandmas and grandpas, whether, whether biological or spiritual. So I'm speaking to all of you. How vital is Yahweh to our families? to our life together, to this church family. It, it is, is Sunday, is Sunday just an addendum on a busy life of work, a busy week of work at Microsoft, followed by Netflix and Facebook in the evenings, and then we repeat. Are you here this morning because worship is just a, a box to check, something to go through the motions about before returning to real life, to real work. Our children can tell what matters to us. They can tell what really matters. And the book of Judges and, and whatever happened here reminds us that our children at home and in this place, in our life together, need to experience that the God we worship is our life. I mean, the world is screaming at all of us. The world is screaming particularly at them because they are the consumers of tomorrow. The world is telling them what they ought to value. The world is telling them what they ought to worship. The world is telling them where life is to be found. And we say, no, life is here. And so how do we do this besides just showing up? You're here. That's a great start. Well done. But how do we do it beyond just being here? How do we, how do we tell the next generation that our life with Yahweh is vital? Well, we, number one, we make spiritual discussions a regular thing in our homes. Whether it be opening in the Word together, whether it be praying 
together, whether it be simply good conversation about honoring the Lord, about walking with Him. Moms and dads, are you talking to your kids about the Lord? I know many of you are. But how about here at church? How about spiritual moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas? Here at church, we take an interest in the next generation, through relationships, through the opportunity to teach them, which many of you are doing. We cultivate a a familial atmosphere here at Ascension that makes the world gaze and wonder, well, what is that all about? We have people into our homes so that our children can see that our life is not just about us, It's about others, others in the body, unbelieving neighbors. Brothers and sisters, you know that this isn't a guarantee that our kids won't forget. Maybe Joshua's generation was doing everything right and in God's providence things just went awry, but it seems to me as we come to this passage, this is a moment to stop and to remind ourselves that we are always in danger of losing the next generation. But by God's grace, we don't have to. We can strive to that end because the Lord is worthy to be known. And that's where we end today. The Lord is worthy to be known. We say, duh, right? Yeah, of course he is worthy to be known, Pastor. That's, that's why I'm here this morning. There is no one like him. Well, they didn't know. We know. Joshua had experienced. The psalmist proclaimed it. The disciples said to Jesus, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so keeping the next generation begins by this knowing, by our knowing, by being gripped by the gospel of grace, being captivated by who He is. If we're not captivated by who He is, if we're not gripped by the gospel, certainly our kids are not going to be. And yet at times, as I challenged us, we live as if He's an addendum, as if there is something better to pursue. Or we get sucked into the lie that our kids should choose, that they should make a path for themselves. And we say, no. They are the Lord's. It is Him that they must serve. Because there's no one else. There's nothing else. There is none better. They've been bought with a price. The Yahweh's own Son, Jesus. And that's His commitment to you. That's the greatest work that we have witnessed here in the new covenant as the new covenant people of God. That's the constant message that our children must hear. We're going to return to this next week, but Israel's abandonment of Yahweh deserved Yahweh's abandonment of them. But here we are. Yahweh didn't abandon His people. His mercy is too deep. His grace is too 
boundless, and yet there will constantly be in our own hearts and in the hearts of our children this battle for their hearts. Let's remember the worth of our God, the glory of the gospel, and let's heed and be warned concerning the next generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this period of Israel's life, this very dark period that reminds us of the darkness of our own days, of the seduction of our own days, that reminds us of the need to be vigilant as moms and dads, as brothers and sisters in Christ for the next generation of worshipers. Father, You are worthy. The Lamb of God is worthy. Oh, Father, equip us to that end. Fill us so with the gospel of grace. Grab a hold of the hearts of our children that they too might declare to their children and them to their children until that day when you return and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and acknowledge that you are God. Oh, Father, we ask for your grace. We plead for your grace. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.